You're listening to The Moment, an interview podcast series on life. We interview and capture conversations with creative minds, thought leaders, disruptors, and the people that are doing what they love while challenging the status quo. You can find the show notes on our website, themomenthq.com, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. But for now, let's dive into The Moment. Welcome to another episode of The Moment HQ, Uncovering Your Life-Changing Moments. I'm Monica Cade. Today, our wonderful guest is Daniel Burgess, who is the founder of The Phoenix Experience and a master practitioner of coaching. Daniel's life-changing moment happened when he was 20 years old. He was a passenger in a single vehicle accident where the driver fell asleep and he was left hanging upside down in the car for two and a half hours. He sustained life-threatening injuries, his back and arm were broken, his neck vertebrae shattered and his calf muscles suffered third-degree burns while his foot was also crushed. As you can imagine, he was in pretty severe condition and he almost died. It's a pretty remarkable story, so let's dive right in to hear some more. Hi Daniel, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi Monica and uh, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So I guess I've given, you know, our audience a little bit of an idea of what your life-changing moment was, but I was hoping you could take us back to when it all happened and how the accident happened and give us a little bit more detail. Yeah, I, um, well, I was, I was quite young. I was 19 and we are on the way up to, to North Queensland to see whether, you know, I was going to move there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as you said, the driver fell asleep and drove into a bridge at 100 k's an hour, and you know that was pretty much the moment that my life changed. And um, you know, as you said, it uh, left me paralysed and in hospital with uh, bolts and everything hanging off me to keep my spine straight. And um, you know, at the time, I chose to have experimental surgery where they took bone out of my hip and put it in my neck and uh, fused three vertebrae. So. It was, um, you know, it was risky, but I took the chance and, um, yeah, I was, you know, very fortunate to be able to be up and walking and, um, you know, re- start to rebuild my life. Mm. And can you tell me, were you conscious when you were in the car, like while you were trapped or do you not remember that so much? Uh, yeah, unfortunately I was uh, conscious the whole time. Yeah. And the ambulance got there quite fast, but it took a little bit longer for the firefighters to get there to cut me out because I was upside down, as you can imagine, in a 35-foot uh, creek bed. Mm. And, yeah, so crazy how life happens. My leg was burning on the engine block, but oh from the spinal damage that I um, that I sustained, I um, my whole right side down from my sort of chest down on my right side was severely damaged from from the injury so I couldn't actually feel my uh leg burning which is probably a blessing but obviously I felt everything else but yeah. uh yeah so it was it was quite an experience and I could hear my other mate that was screaming he'd been thrown out of the car it was lucky that he'd actually didn't have a seatbelt on because the car was crushed right beside me through the through to the seat wow. so yeah so I'm very lucky <laughs> Gosh. And what was going through your mind at that time? What were the thoughts like? Were you panicking? Were you in a lot of fear? Were you in pain? I was I was I was fairly calm. And the only reason I was calm because my other mate was um he was panicking, his leg was like really shattered from mm-hmm. when he got thrown, so I was trying to keep him calm, but 
I was in a lot of pain and it was just my left foot that was crushed that was causing me the most pain. I'm trying, I was trying to push off the steering wheel even with my broken arm and I guess with all the adrenaline I couldn't feel anything. Mm. But, it, yeah, it was a long two and a half hours, I will admit, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, gosh, it sounds horrific. And so you were told that you weren't going to be able to walk after this accident. What inspired you to go against that and believe that that wasn't going to be your fate? Um, I Well, I couldn't, by the time I got to hospital, I couldn't, you know, lift my legs or, or do anything, but I could sort of, on one of my foot, I could slowly, like, I could wiggle, like, half a toe. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, if I can wiggle half a toe, then I should be able to uh, to walk. Mm-hmm. And as you would have seen from my, my bio, I've got a passion for, you know, the outdoors and extreme sports. And, you know, I just always had that belief that, you know, I'd get back riding my bike mm. and doing things that I loved. So, yeah, I, mean, I did have one moment um, I broke down crying. I, I tried to go to the toilet and I couldn't feel anything from my chest down. And the male nurse, he was awesome. He screamed at me and said, pull yourself together, mate, you're better than this. And that sort of just snapped me out of my little pity party and um, got me back on track and I never sort of looked back from there. Wow, how awesome. That's so cool that he was able to, I guess, give you that kind of a wake-up call and you know snap you back out of it that's pretty cool yeah it was it was um you know it was sort of it was a defining moment for me that's for sure yeah and so after this happened you mentioned in your bio that you left your girlfriend in your apartment and your car and uh you ended up being homeless for a while Yes, well, I got out of hospital and, um, you know, when I got back, I was just, I was skinny and I couldn't bear to look at myself. You know, I was so skinny, like I had no chest or rib cage. I went from being like 84 kilos, you know, 19 and very fit and healthy to being sort of 68 kilos in the space of a few weeks. And like I looked like death and I just realised that my old life was gone and I, you know, I couldn't bear to look at myself, let alone what my girlfriend thought. So I literally just left everything like, and um, just went to North Queensland back to where I was going and just had the clothes on my back and just cruised around and hitchhiked everywhere and slept on beaches beside waterfalls wherever I could. And, you know, I was so skinny from my injuries and you know, the, the trauma that people thought I was a bum and they'd give me pamphlets to get off heroin, which was pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, and it just, I just couldn't face anyone or anything, to be honest. It was, um, you know, it was like a blanket had been ripped out from under me, so I just needed to, um, you know, I guess get my head sorted out in my body and swimming in waterfalls and um, rivers just, you know, gave me that relief off my spine. So it was... It was good and bad. Uh, definitely wouldn't change it. And there was times I was so broke that I'd have to walk around Woolworths eating food and fruit and nuts just to survive because you don't really get too much money. So, mm-hmm. but uh, it was a, it was a great experience nonetheless. And what was your mental state like during this time? Well, it was it was sort of up and down. Like I was just in constant pain, mm-hmm. so I couldn't really see a future. You know, people you know would would judge me a lot and. Um, you know, I just couldn't see the future ahead for myself. It was just day to day. All my energy was spent just getting in that water, mm-hmm. just whether it was a beach or a river or a waterfall, just to just to get some relief off the, the pressure on my body. Yeah. So it was very much living day to day. Mm, that's so interesting. And then 
what kind of changed for you? When did you, you know, find work or something like that so you no longer were living that same way? Well, I was sort of probably I was homeless for the first six months and I was pretty lost and I was still very weak. And um, after nine months, I... um, I decided to ring the place where I left my job down in Brisbane and uh, see if I could regain employment in Cairns. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were very gracious because <laughs> I think they knew my circumstance. And yeah. uh, after nine months, I went back to work. And just because, to be honest, I was, I was still, the doctor said I shouldn't have gone back to work for two years. Mm-hmm. That's how bad my injuries were. But I was just so sick of people thinking I was a bum. And, you know, that I knew that I was better than that. So I just, you know, went back to work and I struggled a lot for the first year being back employed just because of the, the pain and being so weak all the time and, and fatigue. But I was just sick of being a bum and having no money and I wanted to start to rebuild my life. Mm. And did you have any support from your family or friends throughout this time or did you isolate yourselves from them? Yeah, I had no support from my family at all. Um, there was dramas um, at the hospital mm-hmm. um, between sort of, you know, like my brother's mum and my mum and my stepdad and they are all arguing over my hospital bed while I had bolts in my neck right. and in my head just, to, you know, while I was in traction. And so I just told them all to get the hell out and I didn't let any adults in for the whole six weeks I was in hospital. So, yeah, so that cut my parents up pretty bad and um but I just yeah I just needed that space from everyone mm-hmm. you yeah. know like my girlfriend tried to contact me and things like that and I just pretty much shut everyone out of my life my friends were there to to support me and um you know people that I met while I had you know I was homeless we were sort of had a bit of a loan cycle going on where we'd lend each other $50 each fortnight to keep <laughs> everyone going. So, um, yeah, it, it was very much I just shut everyone out. Probably wasn't a, a good decision at the time, but um, I definitely um, was only trying to focus on myself and getting my head straight. Yeah. Do you feel that going through that experience of being homeless has given you a deeper sense of compassion maybe for others that are in similar circumstances? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, um, um, I, I definitely do because, and uh, I do some work with some job seekers pro bono, and I talk to them about that this this is not you. This is only the situation that you are in right now. But people will judge you for where you are in this moment in time. But that this doesn't have to be how it always has to be. Mm. And I help them you know, change their mindset and I talk about what I go through and they're like, oh, wow, you know, so it doesn't, um, I wouldn't say I under- you could, I could say I understand their situation because that would be arrogant because everyone's got different reasons, but um, sure. I can definitely have empathy for those people. Yeah, definitely. Mm. What do you feel is the greatest insight that you've learnt about yourself from the entire experience? That I can survive no matter what. Mm. That they and, and, that's really helped me with my coaching and with my clients and when I talk to the job seekers is because I really believe that everyone has inside them the, you know, the, the tools to turn their life around if they choose to do it. Mm. So tell me a little bit about the Phoenix experience because that's obviously what you're doing now and also your journey has shaped a lot of that as well and, and I know that you've mentioned to me that that's part of also the job seeker part as well. 
just so our audience understands. So can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so, yeah, well, I, I had an idea a few years ago and then um, then the idea resurfaced about two years ago around I wanted to take people on life-changing experiences mm-hmm. because we get so caught up in our day-to-day routine and um, and we get so disconnected from ourselves Um Sometimes it takes a, a life event to shake things up and make us realise what's truly important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we often get thrown um, messages from the universe to say, hey, it's time to change, but sometimes we don't listen to those messages mm-hmm. until something really bad happens. And um, some idea around the Phoenix experiences was to take people into the mountains and isolate them from their everyday routine and, you know, help them realise what's truly important to them before, you know, like a life event, you know, does it for them. Yeah, and it's such a, a great initiative, I think. I was, you know, I've had a look on your website and everything, and especially because we're also connected to our phones and to our technology these days, I think everyone can benefit from doing something like that. Yes, yes, definitely. And, um, you, you know, you had uh, quite an amazing career yourself and you know how much your phone rings. Yeah. It's relentless. <laughs> you know, I was area manager and, you know, I was and national brand manager. I was on and off planes all the time. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. It was awesome. I, I loved that playing the game and the hustle and the phone ringing all the time. But when you come home, when I was coming home to my, my wife and family, I noticed that you know, I was checking emails all the time and, and the kids would be playing and I'd be just so distracted and I wasn't, you know, wasn't looking after myself as much as I'd done in the past and I'd become quite disconnected from everyone. Yeah, I know. It absolutely happens. I think as well there is more of a shift happening where people are becoming more conscious of that and more aware of having that. Um, I can't remember what they call it, but they, they have like weekends where they just turn off their technology or don't go on social media and stuff like that. So I think more and more people are aware of it, but it can be difficult because our lives seem to revolve around it constantly. Yes, yeah, and it, it's it become you know, they... It could, you know, some say it's an addiction to your phone, but I think it's just more habit. Mm, It's more habit. We just grab our phone and check our emails or we grab our phone and check Facebook and we're not really even, it's not even really sinking in what we're doing. We just grab it and check it and then, you know, we just get absorbed in whatever's going on with our phone. Yeah, totally. It's like just on autopilot sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You just like you pick your phone up and you're like, what was I actually doing? Yeah, I was actually (laughs) trying to make a call and now I'm on Facebook or Instagram (laughs) or, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Can you tell me what one of the greatest rewards is from facilitating these groups that that you hold? For me, it's just getting people to think about things that they haven't probably thought about in a long time because everyone has, you know, like things that were important to them or goals or dreams or ambition that that maybe they've forgotten about since life got in the way because we all get busy, you know, life changes. But Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just them realising what's truly important to them. What would you say is the first step that someone could possibly take that maybe they're in a rut or they want to make a change but they don't really know how from your experience what would you suggest to them that's it's it's an interesting question because i've just been putting together like a 12-part video series Mm -hmm. and it's going to be like the hero's journey like what i do on my experiences Mm -hmm. and i was like well what where where is the the initial place and i think it's awareness Mm mm-hmm 
awareness of where you are at, like your actual situation, to actually sit back and go, take the time out to think about, you know, what are the things that are saying, who is the person that I am at work and who is the person that I'm at with my family, just actually taking that time out to to observe your actions because we, we do things, as you said, on autopilot. Mm-hmm. And I think just being aware of where you're actually at and being aware of the signs and the triggers, maybe you're a little bit, you're 10, 15 kilos overweight and it's just, you know, creeps on and a little bit disconnected. And, um, yeah, awareness would be the, awareness of your current situation would probably be the the, the first step, I would say. Mm, I agree. And it's a process that you can't judge yourself for as well because I think sometimes people don't want to look at what, they don't like is happening in their life because it's confronting sometimes, but it actually can support you to then get out of that and make a new way forward. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and that's a, a beautiful way of looking at it is, is doing it in a non-judgmental way. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Acknowledging where you are at in this moment, just acknowledging it. And, and I think as well as acknowledging yourself for a, taking time to acknowledge yourself for all the things that you've achieved is very important because, and I talk about this when, when I do my speaking, is that sometimes we, we go on to the next goal, the next dream, the next vision, and we rarely take that time out to say, you know what, I, I actually have achieved a fair bit. Mm. I know. I remember maybe it was a few years ago or something, I just... I think I wrote down just some of the things that I'd achieved over, uh, I don't know, maybe my life. And I, and then when I was able to like really stop and reflect on that, I thought, wow, you know, I've done some pretty cool stuff in my time. And like you're saying, we tend not to do that. We don't really acknowledge ourselves for that. So I agree. It's some really cool advice. Yeah. And, um, you know, everyone talks about gratitude and, um, I saw Kerwin Ray speak the other day and he said that gratitude is the the defeater of stress. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can be grateful of all the things that you have, that you know, then stress is not going to take over because, as you know, stress causes, you know, the, the chemical cortisol which stops our fingernails growing and, our, you know, and our hair growing and things like that. So it actually, if we're under high stress, it actually, you know, stops us growing, which is, you know, that's a... It's, it's not good. No, and it makes you, I mean, I know recently for myself, like I went through a very stressful period of time and I was very aware of what was happening, but I found it very challenging to break that because I think it was, it was almost in a sense burnout. So it was hard to, I could see that my body was producing more cortisol and I could feel it and everything, but to make those changes like you said with your programs you know you're helping people before they get to that stage where they you know have to go through something like get sick or have an injury or something like that that forces them to stop yeah so how did you break the the cycle because it's really a cycle isn't you get caught up and it's the next thing the next thing so how did you you know break that cycle before yeah it's interesting like I had a few trips overseas planned and then they weren't happening and then I could tell it was just getting too much and I actually eventually got sick I got a chest infection and I was in bed for a week and I don't ever get sick so to be in bed for an entire week as well that was pretty I could tell that it was like my body was saying no you need to stop and slow down and rest and and so I guess yeah, I did all the things that I knew, you know, meditation and 
and I kept walking prior to that just to try and get myself out of that state I guess but for whatever reason maybe it had already gone too far and I wasn't able to you know fix it so yeah so doing, doing it more on the surface level maybe as well you know because when you when we try to tell ourselves to get over something it just pushes it deep deeper down until yeah. the, until the body goes enough is enough and um, you end up in bed for a week yeah exactly it's like we have to always look at ourselves truly and not push it back down because it always comes back up <laughs> yes and we've all been there I mean I uh tell the story when I um you know when I do my keynote it's about you know, I'm one of those people that got the lesson so many times before I started to, or like, kept getting given the lesson before I actually learnt it so many times. Mm. And that's the, that's the thing with life; it will keep coming until you learn it and integrate it, and then, and then you can progress. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Mm. Well said. So I've got some signature questions for you. Cool. I, the first question is: What moves you? Um. Being in the mountains, um, riding my bike, and, and um, yeah, seeing my kids laugh. <laughs> awesome. And what are you afraid of? Now this is a tricky one. I'm, I'm afraid. Like I've got this thing where I like to to, to win, mm-hmm. and it's just been inbred in me since I was racing bikes when I was younger. But um, I'm not afraid of failing. But I guess I'm not afraid of you know doing the things that I'm that I believe that I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would be probably something that I'm afraid of and that's been, you know, brutally honest, yeah. Yeah, and what do you believe is your greatest asset? Definitely determination and persistence. Mm. Yes, we can tell from your story that you've got that. That's awesome. And final question, what's the greatest piece of wisdom that you've been given? I would say given where I'm at at the moment with um with my business and and what I'm trying to create is there is no failure, only feedback. Mm, Perfect. Well, that wraps up our interview for today, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you. It was awesome talking to you, Monica. It It was awesome. Thank you. A pleasure.